Hello and welcome to Failing Boldly, a podcast that invites people to share stories about failure, resilience, and perseverance. I'm Christian Kuhn, author of the book Failing Boldly and pastor at Urban Village Church in Chicago. My guest this week is Liz Lenz, author of the book Godland, a story of faith, loss, and renewal in middle America. Liz is a journalist and columnist who writes for the Cedar Rapids Gazette. In Godland, she reports on the state of the church in the Midwest while also integrating her own experiences of faith, marriage, and divorce. She writes with bracing candor and honesty, but does so in a way that bespeaks her commitment to a life of faith. We talk about all of this in this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Liz Lenz, thank you so much for being on the Feeling Boldly podcast. Thank you for having me. Your book, uh, God Land, A Story of Faith, Loss, and Renewal in Middle America, was right in my sweet spot for lots of different reasons. <laughs> a lot of it ha- happens in the state of Iowa, which is where I'm from, and also certainly because you talk a lot about the church and also um, your uh, efforts at starting a church, all of that uh, intrigued me. And as I was reading the book, near the end of the book, there was a quote by James Baldwin that came to mind. And I want to read you that quote. Maybe you've heard it before. And I kept thinking about that as I was reading your book. And so he's talking about um, the United States. And he says, I love America more than any other country in this world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. (laughs) And as I was reading, it seemed that rang true for, it seemed to me anyway, that you love the church and the Midwest. And yet you feel led to point out the things that where they fall short. So uh, would you, would you generally agree with that? Um, It's so funny that you, um, that you bring that up because that quote is, I think one of the guiding, um, like something that guides me. I, you know, I, I love James Baldwin and I have read that quote and I think about it a lot especially in my capacity as an opinion columnist for the paper, because so many people's responses to criticism is, well, if you don't like it, leave, right? Mm -hmm. And and that to me is so wrongheaded because I do love it. That's why I take the time to talk about it. You know, if I didn't, if I didn't love it, if I hated it, I wouldn't even waste my time, right? Right. I would just, I would be like, fine, deal with your own mess and walk away. But I, you know, I, and I do hope that, um, that it does come across how, how deeply, um, how deeply I feel for, uh, for the church and for people and for, you know, the places that I live. Um, and that, you know, it's not just, I, I try not to be snide, although I'm, I'm sure I can be. Um, I was actually just thinking about how I describe mega churches, and I was like, no, I was intentionally snide there. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I think you're exactly right on, and I do think about that James Baldwin quote often, um, especially now, especially in this America, that if, if you love something, you fight for it. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, could you... I guess before we talk more about the book, tell us a little bit, for those who haven't read the book or um, Mm -hmm. don't know your writings, tell us a little bit about your background, your own background, both with the church and with your background in in being a Midwesterner. So I I grew up in Texas being uh, a homeschooled evangelical, you know, back before it was cool, Um, (laughs) back when it was like barely legal uh, to be homeschooled. 
and I'm one of eight kids. And my um, my parents raised us in a deeply conservative evangelical uh, faith tradition, although they are not they are not that anymore. And we've all kind of had our own journeys and have progressed. But so I grew up in this really sheltered, um, I call it a cult when I'm being flippant. Um, my parents don't like it when I say that. But, <laughs> you know, it, it was like a really small, closed, conservative um, faith. And, uh, and, and I've always struggled within those confines and tried to find a way out, tried to find a way to be a person of faith without having that, that like restrictive sense of, you know, what faith can be. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's kind of like, that's very briefly, that's how I grew up. And then my family moved from Texas when I was, um, when I was in middle school to South Dakota, and then they moved uh, to Minnesota when I was in high school. And that's how I ended up in the Midwest. I, um, I went to a very Midwestern college, Gustavus Adolphus College, which is like Swedish and Lutheran as hell. And I assume <laughs> hell is Swedish and Lutheran because, you know, I've been there. And, um, <laughs> and so I, I used to joke that I was the, my, I was the diversity recruit because, you know, I'm brunette and my maiden name was Baranowski. So very Polish, and I was Baptist, you know. So I was, and from Texas for a while too. And probably. from Texas for a while, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, I'm the I'm the diversity recruit. Uh, but it, it's no joke that I do know four people named Bjorn, um, <laughs> all lovely, all blonde, um, all married to Elena's. It's fine. Um, and they, uh, yeah. So that I, I, and then while I was there, or right after I graduated, I uh, got married and moved to Iowa uh, for my now, spoiler alert, ex-husband's job. So the book is about that split as well. Well, one of the interesting things about the book is that you you intersperse your own life story as you're doing the reporting on this essentially kind of the state of the church, and. Again, the, the context of in the Midwest, which is whenever I read books about the state of the church, they're usually pretty general and they don't take into account the nuances of different uh, locations. And so one of the things I appreciate about the book is that you, um, you do that. But later in the book, you talk about, you propose perhaps what is the guiding question of the book. And you write, how can a nation that professes to be majority Christian become a breeding ground for hate? When I ask what is happening to our churches, what I really want to know is what is happening to our souls. And so was that the, I guess I'm curious about the start of how you came about to write the book. Was that question the thing that was burning within you? And you thought, I want, I want to know more about this. Why is it that a seemingly loving faith is acting in unloving ways? And then I want to go deeper with that. Or was it a, a, about telling your own story? Or maybe it was both. You know, um, it, it Initially, it was, um, so the interesting thing about this book is that um, it was based on an article that I, I first pitched the article in late 2015, and then the article was published in 2016, right before the Iowa caucuses, and then um, the book was, uh, a publisher contacted me in April of 2016 about this book. So this book um, was a uh, was already going to happen before the election and before I got divorced. 
and um, which are two primary narratives of the book. <laughs> so it's interesting that uh, that those questions were um, were deep in my mind, but that really kind of coalesced around those two big breaking points, the election and the breaking point of my marriage. But um, to go back to your question of you know what was guiding me, yes, seeing my my church fail and seeing the and, and it failed in this very spectacular way for people listening you don't know but like uh, who haven't read the book don't know but it kind of failed in this way where like we were trying to start this small church and one of the pastors of the church like kind of wanted to like take over a presbyterian church or methodist church and like <laughs> and you know i was like no we can't just like take over you know and it like turned into this huge thing and oh, there were also lots of other issues but it just failed in this like ridiculous spectacular hurtful way and there were and, and these were the people who i loved you know that i who had been with me um and through some really difficult and also wonderful times and seeing hearing them you know talk in a way that was demeaning to me, hearing them, you know, refuse to listen to my opinion because I was a woman, you know, because when it came down to it, that's, you know, that's, you know, I was being told by the people who had been in my life for so many years who I'd started a church with say, you don't get a say because you're not a leader here because you're a woman. And I was like, I literally started this place with, <laughs> you know, and like yeah. now all of a sudden I don't get a, I don't get a vote. Um, and, and, and that's how it had been all along, you know, it, it, I just hadn't seen it. And so, um, yeah, so hearing that, and it, it really, it really made me struggle. And, and then after my church failed, because I'm like the kind of person who's like, okay, something happened, I don't understand it, I want to like, I will now invest everything within my power to understanding it like that's the homeschooler in me i'm like now i'm gonna read 20 books about this <laughs> and like try to you know understand it like right now i'm really obsessed with volcanoes and like i've read three books about volcanoes now and like i i, I don't know but like that's how i go i just go all in on figuring things out and so uh, when i started to figure things out i started to see it didn't feel like an isolated thing to me, like this failure, this breakdown of faith seemed to be part of something bigger that was happening across mm. America. And and I, other people felt that way too, because then when the article was published, a lot of people reached out to me to say, I feel the same way, or you know, my church failed too, or religion has failed me in this way, and something's going on, and I don't like it, and then, you know, the election happened. Like I signed the contract for the book. Uh, you know, I saw a final version for the contract for the book in um, September of 2016. Wow. I signed it in December of 2016, you know, and, and, and it was like, you know, the world hadn't changed. It's just like with the church, the world hadn't changed. I was just forced to confront the reality that I had been uh, avoiding for so long. So yeah, so those guiding questions were really about like, 
what's happening to this faith in this space and these people who talk so much about love and goodness and yet elected Trump, you know, uh, or or fail fail the their neighbors by excluding LGBTQ people, you know, just like seeing that hurt firsthand. You just see you try to you try to understand like how can these two things come together and then you know having that in the context of a bigger national moment you know it just all made it it, it put it into perspective Mm -hmm. into context in a way that I I hadn't really expected I joke with people that that article was my only good take of 2016 (laughs) (laughs) I spent the rest of 2016 you know writing like freelance pieces and stories about like Hillary Clinton and stuff like that and that didn't really work out I want to talk more about the, everybody probably has their response to the why, like, I mean, try to literally answer the question that you, that you lift up. How can a nation that professes be a breeding ground for hate? And it seems like there are at least a couple of reasons that you kind of put out there. One is people just, they love power and they love to be in power and they don't want to give that up easily. And you also talk about, you have a quote saying that uh, nostalgia is no small matter. Uh, and that people yearn for what used to be. So would you say, and maybe you have other reasons too, as you began to answer that question, you know, how is it that a, that a church that um, does these things doesn't seemingly act uh, in the way that it professes? Um, can you ask me that? I'm not, what? Sure, so I guess, what's the, question your, I guess the, the question is, to answer the question that yeah. you lift up, the guiding question. Um, and I, as I was reading the book, it seemed yeah. like there were two possibilities. One is people love power and they don't like yeah. to give that up. That's why they respond that way. And a, another possible answer is nostalgia. And so I'm wondering if those, if you would agree that those are two reasons or maybe there are others. Oh yeah. Okay. Yes. Sorry. I was a little, and it wasn't quite understanding where you wanted me to go. That's all right. yes. Um, yes, absolutely. Those are two reasons. And I think, also, another reason is just people have a real hard time seeing outside of themselves. Mm. You know, like it's, I talk in the book a little bit um, about like that victimhood mentality where it's so like winners who see themselves as losers. Mm-hmm. You know, the, there's this, there is a narrative in Christian America that somehow, you know, they're all Jesus on the cross and you're like, you're actually the majority. You actually won. Like your policies are carrying the day. How are you the victim? And yet, you know, because, you know, for whatever reason, you know, maybe one time somebody told them to stop praying at work or something, then, you know, they're like, oh no, like clearly I'm under attack or Christianity could be under attack at any moment. That there is this, like, they have this real hard time seeing people, and and this goes for all people actually, have a hard time seeing outside of themselves and their own experience. But I think like that's exactly what faith calls us to do is Mm -hmm. to be part of something more than just yourself and to be part of something that's about more than just your self-preservation. I guess that goes back to power, but I do think people just really have a hard time, you know, like understanding their own privilege and their own place in the world, Mm -hmm. you know, just to, to realize, you know, what you're doing. And, And there's, there's a moment in the book where, you know, cause 
I think I was struggling with this myself, writing about this, that, you know, I am a, a white, cisgendered, heterosexual woman. Like, I am, and I also, like, participated actively in churches that are oppressive. So, you know, so there, there has to come a moment where I, too, have to reckon with my own privilege and my own part in this system. And, um, and I hope that also comes across, but I think that that's, people just have a really hard time reckoning with, with their, with their own complicity in a system. It's easy. It's easier to see yourself as a victim Mm -hmm. and it's easier to put the blame on other people than to understand how complex uh, this power structure is and how much it hurts other people. Yeah. You know, there have been so many books and articles written about the decline of the church and why people are leaving the church. But one thing that you bring up in the book that I don't think is talked up and talked about enough is how hard it is for some people to leave the church. Yeah. And so you mentioned out of your own life, someone you talk about, someone asked you, why do you keep believing? And you said, I, I can't, it's just too much a part of me. And then also you mentioned a conversation you had with a friend of yours named Matt and the question is, why don't you go to an LGBTQ affirming church? Uh, and he said, it's never that simple. It's hard to walk away from what you know. And I think that's a story that doesn't get talked about a lot because I experience that too. And when I see particularly somebody who identifies as queer and they still go to a conservative church. And in my mind, I'm like, I can't, I don't understand why, <laughs> why you still go there. And yet I think it's so ingrained in so many people that it's hard for them to leave. Well, and you're also taught that you're like in a lot of conservative churches do this very effectively. We actually teach the Bible. Those other churches don't teach Mm. the Bible. Um, You know, these like these really, you know, evangelical, non-denominational, Baptist, conservative, you know, kind of like orthodox interpretations of the Bible churches will do this thing where they'll say if you know we are we have we have the only acceptable interpretation of god's word and if you go somewhere else that you and start believing what they believe you are not a christian you are going to hell and um i struggle with this a lot in my life and by struggle with it i mean i face these criticisms a lot in my daily life um, because I'm still very much in many ways connected to those uh, conservative centers of faith that I left in the book. Um, And, you know, I've had people reach out to me and say, you do not have a saving faith, which is like, you know, in Christian terminology means you think you're saved, but you're not. Because so, pe- clearly, sorry to yeah. so people will email you or whatever and yeah. say that you are, you're not saved. Right. Because I, I go to, now mm-hmm. I go to an LGBTQ affirming church. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you raise people to believe that if you go to another church, mm-hmm. it doesn't believe what they believe that then you're going to hell. And like, that's really effective. And also, mm-hmm. even if you don't believe that there's also like a level of comfort, you know, I, I go to a church now with a liturgy. I wasn't raised in liturgy. It took me so long to get comfortable with like knowing what liturgy meant and why we do it, you know, 
uh, or, or like even crossing myself, you know, so there, like, there's the level of comfort. There's also like, this is your family. These are your people. And that was one of the reasons it was so hard for me to leave because I just, these are my friends. How mm. could I give up on them and not, you know, and, and not try to at least bridge a gap. And that's another thing. Another reason it's hard to leave is like, I think especially if you're in that space, you want to believe that faith is big enough for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're always, you're just like, you know, you're like, oh, well, you know, it's, we disagree on all these other things, but at least we're talking about it. At least we're journeying together. And at some point you got to realize like, mm, no, I'm actually part, you know, like I'm actually part of a bigger machine here and that's railroading other people and operating on silences and is actively causing harm. I just don't see it because of my privilege. So like, yes, those are all those reasons people stay. Um, I got to talk to um, um, Megan Phelps Roper, who is the granddaughter of Fred Phelps Mm. um, recently. And she was talking about how hard it was for her to leave. um, And Fred Phelps is the founder of Westboro Baptist Church, which is, you know, the famously hateful uh, group of protesters that go around telling everybody that God hates fags and Mm. all that. Um, So she was saying how hard it was for her to leave because that was her family church is your family, a good church is your family, even a bad church can be your family. And, and so, and also that she, she, she spent the first, you know, couple of years after she left just waiting for God to strike her down. And I've heard this from like other people who've left conservative faiths that like, you know, anytime anything bad happened, they were like, oh, this is God's judgment on me for like stepping outside of the, you know, my faith community when it, you know, and it's just like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. You feel like you're falling away from the God you knew, but really you're just getting a bigger picture of him or them or her. Yeah. And for you and leaving the church, uh, or a church, it, you also had the challenge of make, making a decision to leave a church that you started. Well, I mean, it imploded, so I couldn't have stayed if I wanted to. But I, <laughs> I also think too, um, when when I decided I could no longer go to those churches, it also meant I could no longer be married um, mm. because not you know uh, because looking you know, my now ex-husband in the eye and saying, I do not believe these things. I will never believe these things. And I no longer wish to attend a church that doesn't uh, ordain women, that doesn't affirm LGBTQ unions at the very least, you know, then, uh, and I will no longer go to those churches. That meant that, I mean, basically meant we were done. And, And not because we didn't, you know, we didn't try, but because, you know, I, I, you know, then um, his, his pastor then was calling me a heretic. And it's really hard to like, you know, bridge a relationship once the heretic word's been thrown around. So like, <laughs> you know, so those are like, and I, and I don't think people really understand that like, yeah, for, for queer people, leaving a church it means it might mean that like uh, important relationships in your life with your parents, your mom, your dad are now ended. Absolutely ended because, it, you know, a, a, and uh, it's, it's so hard. Yeah. 
Well, the the sense of loss that you must have been experiencing both in with your divorce mm-hmm. and in leaving these relationships and leaving the church. Uh, what kept you going in those days? Um, well, I, I mean, I have two children um, and uh, I, I guess um, I, I don't, you know, what kept me going? I guess I never, I never really thought about not going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that you know, when when things happen again, I, like I said before, my impulse is to just really study them and learn about them. And so, I guess the more things went wrong, the more I was, the more I was motivated to try to figure out why they were going wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely, I, it never occurred to me not to do that. Um, maybe I'm not a very self-reflective person, but yeah, it just, and you know, the more things went wrong, the more I was just like, let's do a postmortem on it. Look at this well, wound. Yeah. How deep does it go? Dig, dig, you know. That's actually, that's very self-reflective. <laughs> well, one of the things too that, that I appreciate about the book was, um, and it sounds like you lived this out, is you, you bring up the interesting point that in the church during Holy Week, um, churches will have a Monday Thursday service, certainly a Good Friday service, and then they jump over Saturday to Sunday, and Easter mm-hmm. Sunday. And so you talk about how churches don't know how to deal with death, and you uh, reflect on Holy Saturday. At one point, you talk, you say that Holy Holy Saturday forces us to sit with a corpse for a day. We have to sit and look at death and ponder what it means. And it, this is in relation to your talking about how sometimes churches sometimes with good intentions, sometimes maybe not, try to do everything under the sun to try to continually attract people and yes. in a way maybe do so inauthentically. How, how, how would you, what would you recommend to churches as far as how to deal with death, about the death of ministry or the death of church? Uh, what would be some advice, I guess, that you would give to the church? Um, that I, there's uh, my, my now pastor, but she's also in the book, Pastor Ritva, um, she she kept saying this thing that as Christians, we believe in death and things have to die. Absolutely things have to die. And I think there is, there's just like an inability to let something die. Uh, and I mean this metaphorically, uh, that it's okay. Like it's mm-hmm. okay to just let it go um, and to let things die and to admit uh, when something has failed, when an endeavor has failed, when you have been wrong, um, when you have hurt someone, you know, when you've been part of something. I, I just, I do, and I, I wish this for all people, but especially for churches, that there would be more of a time of reckoning um, with with the failures and just to just to sit and say, okay, this is dead and I'm going to let it die. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to sit with that for a while, you know, and not just like move on to the next thing or like Jesus rose moving on, you know, it, it you just really like sit in that darkness. And so um, I, I find real value in that as a metaphor, but I also think, you know, quite literally, um, you, you, you know, uh, too. Also, in America, we do not know how to deal with death. Mm. We're always trying to pretend death doesn't happen. You know, we use 
we use metaphors. We don't talk about it with our kids. Uh, you know, we don't like we we fight death at every moment. Uh, our tech companies, you know, Botox in our faces, whatever. Like we just we cannot accept it. And so uh, I I wish churches were just better at um, I, saying this sucks. We sucked. <laughs> <laughs> We've failed and we've hurt. And and also understanding that failure doesn't always mean the closure of a church. I think a lot of Rachel Held uh, Evans, because um, she, she wrote a book about a failed church as well. And her church was great. Like they didn't fail because they had a pastor who wanted to like perform a coup d'etat over Methodist. Like they just were doing good stuff and it just didn't work out. And, you know, sometimes uh, things that fail don't fail because they're bad just because whatever whatever it was is just not working and we need to find something else you know um but uh well and i think too there's sometimes that balance for churches who mm -hmm. totally ignore death and or holy saturday and those who just revel in it and they don't go anywhere else but they just stay there and they don't even make it to easter sunday and i think you also have like the very last couple sentences of your book um when you when you say uh, and i think of nothing actually more american than that to keep trying to find something better and if it fails you you make it you rest it from the earth in an act of both life and death uh and so um, I think what you're trying to communicate too is to to sit with death, but don't stay there. Um, you know, you're talking about churches that stay in death. I guess I've never been in that. Oh, okay. I I, I don't. I can't even like when you were saying that. I was like, I don't. I've never. I've never been in that situation. Too often, people are just trying to, you know, brush. I'm sorry, I hit my computer. Um too often people are trying to brush over the negatives, pretend they didn't happen. Um, you know, I would, I would love to be in a situation where, um, where, where people were like self-flagellating a little bit more, especially people in power. I'd love to see how that looks. Uh, and, and I'd love to hear from people in power about all their failings. And then maybe I'd be like, okay, time to move on. Yeah. But um, you know, I guess it's hard for me not to think about this even big picture. And this isn't part of the book, but um, I do know there is a book coming out about this, this topic, but um, you know, like the me too movement in the churches and the talking about um, sexual assault in church and when it happens inside of churches. Um, and I'm very excited for Emily Joy's book, I think, which will be out next year, all about this topic. Um, but, um, you know, I think about those those incidences specifically, like we just don't talk about them in churches. You know, I'd love, I would love to sit, I would love to hear a church sit with that corpse for mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah, it may be a better way for me <clears throat> as I reflect on it is not necessarily that they stay in death, but maybe a better way of it is they, they stay in the past. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. And, okay. Um, for people who don't look forward at all and constantly think backward, which, you know, maybe is a way of dealing with death, maybe not. Um, so I guess that's when I asked that question, I was, I was more reflecting on that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 
that that makes that makes sense to me but i think that's also a little bit of like you know i think the kind of the metaphor of like sitting with a corpse like you know means like sitting with like it's fleshy stinky rotting reality and um and that you know like in the that impulse to like look backward or be nostalgic or not move forward is really like it's really like whitewashing the corpse in a way, you know, because it doesn't sit with the realities of what the past was actually like. I talk about this in the book, you know, there's this, there's this idea that there was at some point in America where everybody went to church and everybody was married. And that's like an actual lie. Like that church attendance peaked in the 1960s because of the cold war. Uh, because it was like a concerted effort, you know, by politicians to get people to go to church uh, to like keep them sober, hardworking capitalists. Like, it, you know, and like that peaked in 1960 and has just continued to level out since then. Um, so, you know, it's not like all the pioneers were these like hardy, like church going Christians. Uh, they, they, you know, they kind of sucked as people and they were like escaping jail sentences in New York city. Uh, so, I mean, like, just like, so like, you know, if we're going to look backward, let's look backward with some reality. Like let's sit with the fleshy reality of what it actually means. Mm -hmm. So are you hopeful for the future of the church? Oh, uh, I mean, Oh, no, <laughs> no, I wanted to say yes, but I have to say no, because as long as the power is always in the hands of um, of white men, it's never going to change. Um, you don't see, I don't see anything changing as long as there is not a reckoning with the, um, with the power structures and the complicity and the silences that really get me. Uh, you know, that there's, there, it, I, so I, I, I have hope in faith, but I don't have hope in the church. Um, I would like to, um, I have hope in some churches. <laughs> I have hope in, I see people out there doing some incredible work in faith and in faith communities, but the church has a power structure. I don't have hope in, but I guess I don't have hope in much many power structures, which is why I constantly criticize them. Uh, so, uh, so I mean that I think that's also an important distinction. I think there are a lot of people out there doing incredible work in faith, but as church as a power structure, uh, I I think uh, needs to come down. Absolutely. Mm. Well, it's, I guess that's a, both a sober note, but also uh, a realistic note in, um, for all of us to, to reflect on and how we, and it sounds like this is, you're doing this at the church you attend too, is I, I, I hear this, not you're saying like, I'm not hopeful with church, therefore I'm out. Right. But you, you know the good that a church and hopefully the church can do. And so while you look at power structures that doesn't give you hope or you're not hopeful still you you there's work to be done and you're in there doing it yes i am there i am still part of a church i am still working hard uh to, as as part of that church and as a person of faith a uh, question i get asked a lot is you know 
are you always going to go to church? And I'm like, I don't know, you know, life is long and complicated, but I know I will always be a person who believes in something bigger than myself. And I will always be trying to work to make the world around me a better place. And I think that church is uniquely suited uh, for that role and that the, and I see the good that church can do and the community. And so I'll always be part of that and always trying to, um, use it for good and change it for good, even if I have little hope in the bigger powers that be. Hmm. Well, I uh, often end my conversations with folks asking them to tell a story of failure from their own life. And so this is um, can be something personal or professional. It can be something small or something big, something that happened yesterday, something that happened several years ago. And so I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing a story from your own life. We have a little bit, I guess, in some of this, but I don't know if there's something else that you'd like to share. Um, yeah, you know, it's so funny because you warned me about this ahead of time and, um, and, and I, you suggested, you know, you were like, since we're already talking about, it, you could bring up one of these other things. And one of them was divorce. And I don't, I think when I was going through it, I thought of it as a failure. Uh, but now I see it as a success because it's, it's such like, it is, it is so hard to give up something uh, and to just quit and let it go um, mm. that I actually see that like as a sign of success now. I, yeah. And I want, I wish we would talk more about divorces as success. Um, but that was like a little bit of a sidetrack, but I think that's probably your bigger point about failure anyway. But I, uh, the other thing I had thought of was I had spent this past summer in Austin uh, researching a story that I was going to write for a big national magazine. I was very excited and I did all this research and I wrote the story and they killed it. Mm. Uh, they just, I mean, not just like, they're like, yeah, never mind. We don't, we don't want to run it anymore. And I just got that news the other day and I was so, it was like so demoralizing, but I, but it made me think like, you know, just like the, the, you know, not every story is a story that needs to be told, you know? And, and so like, like just like finding the space to just let that go uh, recently has just been so weird and so hard. And I was thinking about um, somebody had told me a story about, you know, Joan Didion, like going and researching some story and then just coming back and being like, no, I'm not going to write this. There's nothing there. And just like, what a, um, like what a next level thing to be able to say that like I've done this work, but I'm smart enough to know that this isn't work that needs to be done, mm. you know? And so like, that's, so that's something I've been thinking a lot about, especially with my writing and my storytelling, like do, am I, am I at that? Am I smart enough to know when to let a story go? Well, her book is Godland, a story of faith, loss, and renewal in middle America. And I recommend it for sure. Liz, thank you so much again for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And that's this week's episode. Thanks again to Liz for giving her time for this conversation. To learn more about Liz and her writings, you can go to her website, lizlens.com. That's L-Y-Z-L-E-N-Z.com. To learn more about my book and the ministry I'm a part of, you can go to christiancoon.com. I hope you'll subscribing to this podcast via Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'm excited about my next episode in honor of the 10-year anniversary of Urban Village Church. 
I'll be talking to the other co-founder of Urban Village, Trey Hall, as we reminisce. And also Trey will be sharing about his life now in England and the state of the church there. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.